Welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm Liza Hanks. Birth, old age, sickness, and death are part of every human life, yet most of us avoid talking about it or planning for it. Death is like sex, really. We all do it. Most of us are embarrassed to talk about it, and most of us have questions that we're afraid to ask. Fear no more. I'm here to answer your questions without judgment. I've spent more than 20 years as an estate planning attorney, and I know for certain that you have enough information, enough education, and the financial savvy to do what needs to be done. Are you ready? Let's get started. As I often tell my patients and or families and family meetings that the more we need to do for your loved ones, so the more life support they need, the worse sign that is. It's a reflection of just how much their body is dependent on external means for survival. That's Dr. Sunita Puri. She's the program director of the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Massachusetts, where she's also an associate professor of clinical medicine. And she's the author of That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, a memoir that examines her journey to the practice of palliative medicine and her quest to help patients and families redefine what it means to live and die well in the face of serious illness. She's the recipient of a Rhodes Scholarship. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, Slate, JAMA, and soon the New Yorker. And I'm thrilled to have her on the show. And here's the thing. I loved reading her book, and I think you will too. It has a lot to teach all of us about what matters at the end of life, and even better, about how to communicate this clearly to our loved ones and to our doctors. You should read it. You'll learn a lot. You'll be glad you read it. Join me for this conversation with Dr. Sunita Puri. Well, Sunita, I really want to welcome you to the podcast today. I'm thrilled that you could join us to talk about your amazing book, That Good Night, and palliative care and how people can use it and what it is and how to get it if your hospital doesn't offer it. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Liza. It's, it's really great to be here. So I wondered if we could start by you reading a passage from your book that I think really encapsulates the spirit of the book and and the, and the value of the book and also the beautiful writing in the book. So with that introduction, why don't you go ahead? All right. What had I learned about death in doing this work? I'd seen that no amount of considering or preparing for it made it easy. Talking about it to prepare frightened loved ones, saying or writing goodbye, and trying to make peace with a higher power might soothe us and help us. We feared it and sought to control every aspect of it. Giving death this much power distorted my view on life, my own, and that of my loved ones and patients. Fighting and fearing death obscured finding meaning in living moments. What if I regarded my own death with reverence instead of fear? I wondered. Or even more radically, what if I had some sort of gratitude for the transience of my life? Thank you so much for that. And now I'm thinking of a book called After Ecstasy, The Laundry. (laughs) 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 Because... This is a podcast about both of those things, you know, the sacred Mm -hmm. and also the incredibly practical, right? That we're going to meet this moment, whether we're prepared for it or not, Mm -hmm. whether we've thought it through or not. And if we look at it 
as an opportunity to both live more meaningful lives and to do the work ahead of time so that we can meet it as best as possible. I mean, that's kind of a great outcome, right? And so thank you for that. And maybe talk a little bit about what moved you to write the book before we get into the details. Certainly. I was always a writer and a really avid reader before I came into medicine. And, you know, I started writing like little stories when I was like three or four, because my dad would make me write one page of anything I wanted when I was very young, because he really wanted me to be able to communicate well in this country in English. And so I'd always had this very deep reverence for writing, even though I hated, by the way, that assignment back at that time. It really kind of instilled in me a love of language and of storytelling. I always knew that I was going to write books. And I wrote this book in particular because I really felt in my medical education that I wanted a book, a set of stories to help me on my own in my own development and journey because you're really taught you're really socialized in medicine that death is your enemy that you need to keep keep people alive and that means you've done a good job doctoring and that really kind of devastated me in my training because I would see all these situations where I was asked to do procedures just because I could but not because I should and so that took a toll on me. And I always felt like a bad doctor for even considering having a discussion about where this care was going for this for the critically ill person in front of me because it I felt like it flew in the face of what I was being socialized to do. And so I wrote the book to write to people like me who were in their training, who knew the facts, the medical facts, who could make diagnoses, but couldn't necessarily answer to that little gnawing voice inside you that says, am I really doing the right thing for this person? And if not, how do I even navigate talking about another path? And I also wrote the book because I really wanted to understand how my upbringing as the child of immigrants who revered both science and God, how that led me to practice palliative care, which let's face it, is a pretty misunderstood and often marginalized field in the hospital and the medical system. And so I wanted to really meld those two stories together, the story of how I came to be the person I am, but also the story of how I came to be the doctor that I am. Thank you for that. And, you know, I really, I wrote this book also as a love letter to my parents for everything that they had to go through to get my brother and I where we are. Let's talk about what palliative care doctors do and mm -hmm. what they can offer to the critically ill patient and how somebody might know whether or not they want palliative care in mm -hmm. the hospital. Can we start with that? Sure. So just as a definition, palliative care is a type of care where we really focus on suffering and that includes physical suffering. So for example, treating pain from a widespread cancer, it includes emotional suffering. So helping people and their families kind of deal with the emotions that come with either getting a serious diagnosis or being critically ill. 
and spiritual and existential suffering, which are really kind of helping people contend with the big life questions of why did this happen to me? What does it mean for my faith? How does my faith help me or do I abandon my faith because this happened to me? So all the kind of the storm of things that accompany being sick is what palliative care embraces rather than runs away or backs away from. And usually our teams are made up of a doctor, nurse or nurse practitioner, social worker, and someone from spiritual care. But it's worth noting that not every hospital or clinic has all of those components of a palliative care team, that sometimes it really is just one nurse or one social worker or one nurse practitioner, when it really should be a full complement of people because we're attending to so many different needs of patients and families and no one person can do it all. And, you know, usually you need to get you get palliative care referrals through your doctors. So in the hospital, let's say someone's in the ICU, it's the ICU doctor that would need to call a palliative care consult in order for us to see a patient. Mm -hmm. It's not always something that is automatic. And so patients and families should really ask their teams for a palliative care consult if they have uncontrolled pain or other symptoms related to a serious disease, or they want to talk about their goals of care, which is really kind of medical ease for having a conversation with your doctors and your other care providers about the nature of your illness, what to expect as your illness unfolds, and what your own personal goals and values are and what you want from your life when you're sick. Yeah. There's a story in your book about the guy who had the fungal infection in his brain. The story, as you told it, it sounded like the, the first time he realized how seriously ill he was, was when you told him that he didn't understand from the doctors that were treating him, the gravity of his disease. And I think that that is not an uncommon experience for people that are really ill. You know, the doctors come in and they're doing all these things, but they don't tell you that you're really sick and that maybe there's nothing else that can be done. Why is it that it would be you that had to tell somebody how sick they really are? And and how does a, how does a family of a patient ask for that? I guess it's a goals of care conversation, right? Yep. So sadly, Liza, about 90% of my job is coming in and helping teams to articulate what's going on with a person. And oftentimes it falls to me to say the hardest things. And it is, I think, a reflection of the institutional culture. And every institution has a different culture when it comes to palliative care. And there's differences in academic medicine, which is where I'm situated versus you know, community hospitals, I think, I don't exactly know why this continues to happen, but I think it goes back to how we are trained and how there's this dichotomy between we're going to quote unquote, do everything or quote unquote, give up. And that understanding or that orientation to patient care is so beyond damaging that I 
personally don't even have words to describe the extent of the damage. I think it's unfair in the greatest extreme to patients and families and also other care providers. And so what I have to do when I come in at what I call the 11th hour is to act almost as if I already have a relationship with that patient to to kind of make it less weird that I'm a face at the end. And I have to, I always have the teams there because I want them to learn how to do this, but I also try to make them articulate what it is that can and can't be done and the reasons why. So I'm there for the patient and the family, but I'm also very much there for the team to help them through the difficulty of accepting not that they have failed, but that a person's body has reached a limit. And the limit of the human body is not something we ever learn in our training. And I have to hope that's starting to change, but again, it's very institution specific and there's no mandated guidelines in this country for what medical schools have to teach and how about breaking bad news or telling people the truth or even palliative care exposure. Well, that's interesting. You know, the do everything piece of the book was something I did want to talk about. I'm assuming you've changed the names of these people, but you you tell the story of Teresa and Ray who, who are demanding, you know, that doctors do everything they can for their father who's failing. And I have heard so much anger and pain in these last two years around COVID and around this sense of how is it possible that, you know, close to a million people have died in this country from this disease. And I feel like we could talk a little bit about what do everything means and how my listeners can start to have conversations with their families about what everything might mean to them and what a good death might mean to them if their body has reached a limit where medical technology isn't going to do anything except prolong their lives in a very kind of brutal way that I think most people don't really know. I mean, as an estate planner, when I have tons of doctors clients, cause I, I practice near Stanford, none of the doctors want any kind of end of life care except comfort care, right? It's like so easy for them. But a lot of people I work with are really not sure. And they're really afraid of what it might mean to say that. And so I hope that you could provide some helpful information to my listeners about that. Yeah, absolutely. So this kind of phrase of you need to do everything for my loved one, everything is very situation specific. And so I think people have in their minds that everything guarantees a specific outcome. And that's why they ask for it. They want to know that doctors are really taking their loved one's care seriously. The problem with the phrase do everything is that what everything means is very much related to someone's current, their state of health. So for example, people often have in mind for the critically ill patient that having someone on a ventilator, on dialysis, doing quote unquote, whatever it takes for their loved one to stay alive is they think that's a good idea. And as I often tell my patients and or families in family meetings that the more we need to do for your loved ones, so the more life support they need, the worse sign that is. It's a reflection of just how much 
their body is dependent on external means for survival. So the goal is always to get you on the least amount of life support or have you be on the least amount of life support. And the more you need, the sicker you are. And the sicker you are in the ICU, the greater the chance you won't leave the ICU. And I try to break that down very simply because I think people think that when their loved one is on everything, that that's a good thing. And it's always surprising to people when I say, the least we need to do, the better your loved one is doing. And so doing everything, quote unquote, for a 23-year-old who's otherwise healthy and in a car accident and maybe needs to be on a ventilator and maybe even some dialysis for some time, that is very different than having someone with end-stage metastatic cancer who's septic or has a terrible infection and requires a ventilator and dialysis. The same technologies deployed in different situations, the context needs to be understood. And I think what's tough is that when we talk about doing everything, it's about everything that makes sense for that person, not necessarily everything that a family has in mind or has seen on TV. And that's where knowing how to communicate clearly and compassionately can make the difference between someone dying with dignity or someone being on life support that only extends death. And I think when people are having conversations with their loved ones, the question is not, do you want to live? Like I hear this all the time. My mom says she wants to live. And I have to say, of course, you know, of course, that's what she wants. Of course, that's what you and I want. But the question is not whether she wants to live, but how she wants to live. My follow up to that is the communications that we should all be having with our loved ones now when we're not in a crisis and we're not sick. And we have this moment. It's kind of a sacred moment, really, to think about our end of life wishes. And I am continually frustrated by the legal profession that is so focused on the transfer of property that this conversation is often just an afterthought. You know, after we talk about taxes, after we talk about how we're going to manage money for kids, you know, at the very end of the conversation, so many lawyers will say, oh, by the way, we have to do an advanced directive. Do you want life support or not? Instead of saying, you know, this is really important. And the more that you can think about it now and the more you can communicate with your loved ones, the easier it's going to be for them when they have to make these tough decisions. And so I wondered if you could speak a little bit about how we could all best communicate our wishes, not only to our loved ones, but also to doctors like you when the time comes. So I think when when you're having conversations with loved ones, what I find very helpful is to bring in examples of people who have died in the family or friends. So framing it like, you know, obviously with COVID, but in life in general, people can get sick quickly and unexpectedly. And I want to be able to be the best voice for you if something changes in your health and you can't talk to your doctors about what you want for yourself if you're really sick. So framing it like that and saying, you know, this is a conversation. I know it's a really tough conversation and we don't need to come to final conclusions right now, but I want to do this because I love you 
I don't want to back away from my fear of this conversation because I love you. So really grounding it in love, I think is a really important way to open it and acknowledging that it's a scary conversation and it can be one that happens over time, not all at once. And sometimes I think bringing in examples, it just grounds the conversation in specifics. Because I think even when doctors ask, what would you want for yourself if your time were short? That's such an abstract question that people don't know how to answer that. And so saying... For example, do you remember how grandma died? Grandma died on hospice with end-stage breast cancer. And I'm wondering what your experience of watching that happen was. Did it make you think about what you would want if you were in that situation? Or during COVID, Uncle Dan died on a ventilator in the ICU. What was that like for you? What was your reaction to that? And opening up with these really specific scenarios can kind of help people understand why this conversation is so important because they may not want to die like Uncle Dan, or they may want to go down in a blaze of glory. It's important to keep it the least abstract possible and to even offer up what you've thought about. So, you know, I've thought about, like me personally, I've thought about what it would mean, what my decisions would be if I got into some acute, sudden accident, which is different than dying of a terminal, irreversible illness. And I've thought about what it would be for me to ask for no intervention if it was really kind of a situation where nothing was reversible versus a trial of intervention if it was something like a big car accident and I'm in the surgical ICU, but I was, I'm otherwise young and healthy. And that's where the nuance comes in. And I think it's so much more than do you want CPR or not? Do you want to be on life support or not? And I think the other big, big part of this is talking with your doctors about your choices because family members, well-intentioned can open these discussions, but the context in which you make these decisions has to come from your doctors. So for example, you've been on dialysis for five years, right? Being on dialysis itself is a risk factor for early death for a number of reasons. So going to your doctor and saying, my daughter and I are talking about this, but I want your input as well. Because I think we are so scared in our profession for reasons I don't understand to offer opinions and recommendations that we put it all on patients and families without our guidance. And I think that is flat out wrong. What percentage of the clients or patients that you see in the hospital have advanced directives in place? And how many of them have posts, the physician order for life-sustaining treatment. What do you see on the ground? Not very many. So I used to round with the surgical ICU team and there's a lot of elderly patients in that ICU and not a single one had an advanced directive or if they did, the team didn't ask for it. So sometimes people have them and we're not asking for them. At the cancer center, it's about 10% of people. Wow. I I did see this percentage that 92% of Americans say it's important to discuss their end-of-life wishes and only 32% have. That's that's from the Conversation Project. And I will put that in the show notes too as as a resource for people. But, you know, I just find that astonishing because 100% of my clients have advanced directives, right? 
But, you know, it's easy to forget that this isn't something ubiquitous. And I think people have a lot of fear about advanced directives because if I put it in writing, it's it's not mutable. I know. I tell people that all the time. As long as you can communicate, you can change your mind about anything. Exactly. And right. I verbally, think, yeah. Totally. And I think some of that's just education about an advanced directive because some of it is has nothing even to do with just talking about life support or end of life, but even just establishing who is your decision maker and committing that to writing. Because, I mean, I've been in a ton of situations where there's no designated decision maker or makers and people in the family start fighting about who has the authority, who has the most authority in decision-making if their loved one's incapacitated. I have also seen, and I tell people to do this, that they should write who they do not want involved with decision-making. Because I have seen scenarios, sadly, where there's, for example, a spouse and an ex-spouse, and they start fighting over who really knows the person the best. I think it's just, you've got to write down who is your voice and who isn't your voice and who your alternates are. And even if you just do that, which you're also allowed to change, that's huge. But obviously you want to complete the whole thing. That's ideal. And and I think the other thing, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, is I've just seen so many different forms of advanced directives. There's like the, the basic forms, and then there's the very detailed ones where lawyers go into very specific scenarios dictated by the patient and family. Sometimes very detailed instructions are very helpful. And other times they get us into tough situations because what the person wants may not be what's ethically possible to offer medically. So either you have some instruction or no instructions. I know. I mean, I I often tell people not to be too specific because if you say, you know, I only want to die in the ICU on a Thursday wearing a black t-shirt that I'll guarantee you it's going to be Wednesday. You're going to have something else on, you know, there's so many ways that we can get to the end of life. And also it can be such a gray moment. It's not always so clear when you're there. Right. I mean, it's right. It's not always an easy decision. And so what I'm asking people to do is to state their general preferences. You know, I do, or I don't want this quality of life. So that the people that they've designated as their decision makers can navigate this terrain, knowing generally what you do or don't want, because that's what I've heard from doctors is the most helpful thing. But you're right. There's so many different forms out there, but at least having a decision maker and having a general sense of what you do or don't want, that's kind of my bottom line. What do you do when there's no designated decision maker? So I think a lot of people assume that the spouse is the decision maker, but there's actually no hierarchy in California. Yeah, there's no law on that. I was so surprised to read that. And it's, you know, in other states, there's very clearly delineated laws about who should we go to next. In my experience, we usually end up working with the blood relatives in some capacity, not just one person. And usually it's not just one person that all the decision-making falls on. Sometimes there are situations where a patient's spouse says, I am the decision-maker and whatever my children say just doesn't matter. 
The tricky part is when obviously when people are polarized and one says, well, dad would never want this. And one says, no, dad told me on my birthday that he would want to be on a ventilator or whatever the situation is. And that's again, where I think physicians coming forward and making recommendations and providing some structure to the plan. So all the decisions don't fall on family. I think that's so important for that to be a collaborative process. And what I've seen, sadly, is that we just kind of pose these things to families often in yes, no ways without laying out in a comprehensive way what the stakes are. If we can offer recommendations and some shape to the plan, that that actually can make it easier on whoever the designated decision makers are. I think that's great. And and I want to be respectful of your time. But to bring this full circle, I think your book is an amazing resource for families facing serious illness and trying to navigate this terrain in a in an empowered and educated way. And so I think it's a resource not just for your doctor colleagues, but really for all of us who are going to face this at one time or another in our lives. So I would say read this book and do your advanced healthcare directive. That would be my takeaway from this chat. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wished I had? Or anything you want to say about the book that I didn't ask? Because I could take two hours just about the book. But I-, <laughs> Thank you. I, I think one question you posed before we started recording is a really important one. Basically, how do you get palliative care if you think your loved one needs it? And I would strongly encourage families, especially when their loved ones in the ICU or very seriously ill, living with an advanced cancer or advanced heart failure, dementia, things like that. I would ask your care team, your physician for a palliative care consult, which can be helpful again in controlling symptoms in having goals of care discussions, and in really attending to your loved one's overall quality of life. That's the objective of the field. You can get it right alongside any other sort of treatment you're having. So there's not a decision to be made between palliative care and other treatment. The two go together. And I think if you're in a place where, for example, there is really no palliative care team, then I think telling your doctor, I would like to have a goals of care conversation. I want to understand what's going on with me medically. I want you to understand what's important to me. And I want to put those two together so that we have a clear plan moving forward. Great. I think that's really helpful. And I will put links to your book. I will put links to resources for people who are trying to figure out how to have a conversation with their loved ones about these issues. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Liza, and for your own great work. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's guests and to read the show notes for this episode, go to lifedeathlaw.com. And if you'd like to ask me a question to be answered on the podcast, just send me a voice memo or an email to askliza at lifedeathlaw.com. Make sure to tell me your name and where you're writing from, and who knows, you might hear your question on the show. So take care, and remember, when it comes to life, death, and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. And please remember, the information on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. 
This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship.